what I learned from this email exchange is if your thoughts and the way you're choosing to see someone is that soul first, that primarily I'm a shama and I'm a light and I'm good and I'm a part of God, it literally, literally, not just in theory and not as a concept, it literally changes the whole tone of the conversation. there. I'm Tanya, and you're listening to Season 2 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by the children of Chaya Leah Yehudis, Bas Nechafredel, in honor of her complete and speedy recovery. Thank you to her children for making today's episode happen. May all the learning done through today's episode be in merit of her complete and total healing. To sponsor an episode or become a paying subscriber of the podcast on Patreon, please visit the link in the show notes, patreon.com slash humanandholy, or email us at humanandholy at gmail.com. In today's episode, I bring you a beautiful and extremely grounded conversation with Miriam Lipsker about this idealistic concept of seeing another person's soul before we judge them for their actions. Based on chapter 32 of Tanya, in Miriam's own lived experience, we discuss what it actually means to see others, souls first, and what it means to see ourselves that way too. My name is Miriam Lipsker. My husband and I moved down south from New York, New Jersey, down to Atlanta, Georgia, a couple months after our wedding to start up uh, Chabad at Emory University. They say Emory actually stands for Established Methodist, only recently Yiddish, because there's a really (laughs) strong representation of our tribe down here. It's a great school. We started out, it was just the two of us. Thankfully, things got really busy and really awesomely hectic in a good way. And we added full-time, I would say, eight staff members who, incidentally, I gave birth to all of them. Oh. (laughs) Um, And the reason I'm saying that is because people very often look at life as like, you know, your work, your home, your family, your job. And thankfully, at least from my perspective, it's just one holistic life without those sort of borders in my mind. And one thing flows into the other. So our kids are very much in our lives with us. And what we do, in my view, is very much not work. It's living and sharing our life. And we've been proudly and feel greatly privileged to be on this campus, this beautiful campus for the last, it's crazy when I say over two decades, like we've been here 20 years and we started, I was the age of the students. Now I'm kind of their parents' age. I don't know how that took place, but it did. And it's just really a privilege to open the doors of our home, to share it with our family members that are from far and near. And that's really what our full-time lives look like. A big, loud, noisy, messy mix of family and extended family, community, and all of it blended together. Okay, awesome. I love how you said that because I think that the topic you're going to discuss today also holistically really 
flows with every single role that you have. We're going to talk about the way that we perceive other people and how that impacts the way we treat them. So I don't want to give too much away. I would love if you could introduce the topic. Yeah, you said it, but I'll echo what you said. It's really a very strong thread going through. I don't just think my life. I think really it's more universal than my own story. I choose to look at everyone and everything around me, including and not limited to myself, is really the key to how I live in this world. And the textual basis for this from a Kabbalistic or Hasidic perspective is actually found in the heart of the preliminary work of Hasidic philosophy known as the Tanya, which is written by the first Chabad Rebbe, the Baal HaTanya, and his central chapter, and I'm calling it the central chapter, although if you add up the numbers, it may not be, but it's the heart of the book. Literally, the number of the chapter is Lamed Bey's 32. And the central point of this chapter, which is the heart of the book, but also I feel like the heart of our lives, is that if we choose to view other people or ourselves, and I should probably start with ourselves because that's really where it matters more, as just what I look like or what my personality is, what my skills are, what I can do, what I do well, what I don't do well. And then in the background, there's another sub story, which is I happen to be Jewish. I happen to be a divine light of God in this world. I happen to have a spiritual side, a soul, call it whatever you're comfortable with. If that's how I set up my life, like first comes the me, the external me, the expressions of me, and then comes that core or that root that really sets us up for so much struggle and challenge and darkness more than we even are going to have just from being human. And the reason why I believe that is because anytime we encounter anyone, including ourselves in the mirror, we're always trying to make sense of or trying to uncover all those different external things. And it's a divider. It's a, we're different. I don't get you. I don't understand you. I don't appreciate you or me in the mirror. And I feel like it's such a source of conflict in our real relationships with ourselves, with our spouse, with our children, with our colleagues, our coworkers. If I show up and look at you and you're this human being who's this external person with these personalities and these abilities, and I have issues with your personality or the way you communicate or the way you express yourself or what you do with your, you know, when you said you were going to do X, Y, or Z, we, we just have this incredible amount of conflict that we all experience because we're humans. And that's kind of the modality that we go through this world. But the Tanya opens us up to a vista of completely transformative ability to see things flipped or reversed or from the inside out. And what is that viewpoint? It's that first, I'm a soul. First, I'm a godly expression or a divine light in this world. Happens to be straight up reality. That soul is clothed in a body. This is what it looks like. This is what it's good at. This is what its challenges are and all the other things that make us who we are and why that seems so minor, but it's really so major in its transformational ability is if I look at myself in the mirror as a divine light and as a soul, and I look at the person in front of me, whether that's my kid who's just been terrorizing his sibling and just turned over the house and is now tantruming about what I made for dinner or whatever, or it's my spouse who has a completely a different idea of what we should be doing with this week off with the kids and a colleague or a student, or it doesn't really matter the who. If the starting point is you're a divine, pristine, beautiful, godly light and manifestation in the world, and then you have different ways of expressing that or learning about how to 
step into that or how to express that, then my starting point right away comes from a more compassionate, also a more unified, like we're one more than we're separate. We're a source that's connected more than we're different people divided by all the things that divide people. You know, my political perspectives, my view on vaccines, my view on current events, like those divide us straight up and we know it. But if I look at you and in your eyes is the reflection of your soul, which I share equally, and we're equally a part of our divine creator and our father in heaven has given us this light and this ability to live. It changes the conversation in such a real way because if I can put my headspace in your heart space or put my mind where your soul is, I'm still going to come up against the bodily manifestations of what it means to be a physical human. Let's not like be too lofty or too spiritual. I'm still going to come up against it, but my starting point is going to be unity, compassion, love. We're one. I get you. We're part of the same light and you're good. And you at your heart and soul and core, you're you're the, that's the best part of who you are. And I'm going to see you from that way first. And then, yeah, we're going to need to address some decisions and some actions and some words that you shared that we're going to butt up against and have to unpack and go through. But the starting point really changes everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that when this idea is shared, whether it's from a text like Tanya or even the original source comes from the Megillah, Megillah Esther, which we read on Purim, it's beautiful that a sentence from the story of the Megillah was actually taken out and put into every single week of the Jewish ebb and flow of life. And that is that at the conclusion of Shabbos, we have a ceremony called Havdalah where we take a light and always some wine and some spices or something that smells really fragrant. And when we hold that candle, Havdalah candlestick up, there's a sentence that's said by everyone who's part of the service, not just whoever's making the Havdalah. And that is this verse, Layahudim which translates as, for the Jews, there was light and joy and gladness. And the obvious thing is, we get that they were happy. We get that it was a good turnout and everyone was pleased that things changed for the better. So they were happy. But what does it mean there was light? Like, was it dark before? Like, did all the lights go out? Was it the dark ages? Like, where is this idea of awe, of light coming in? And then they were happy. You could take this 101 directions. The angle that I like to look at it is when you focus on the light, when you see that source and that essence of where you're actually living from and what your purpose is to manifest that light in whatever individual way that you're uniquely gifted to do that, that's where joy comes from. Because when you see unity, when you look at another person or when you see light or when you see positivity, because you're choosing to look there, not because they don't have other things to distract or to get your attention. That's really where joyful living is possible. And I think that all the ideas of, you know, how to live mindfully and joyfully is huge on our agenda as modern humans. But I think the Torah has these incredible insights. And for me, this one of seeing that light first before you see all the challenges and the issues is the starting point that actually allows you to find happiness. Because so often we're distracted by all the chaos and noise and opinions and discussions. And even the talk that we're supposed to tell ourselves, you know, why am I not good enough? And why am I not measuring up? I'm going to say most of our challenges come from the fact that we're focusing on the bodily, physical part of us before the mm. soul, as opposed to acknowledging these are two real realities, but what do I choose to highlight first? Or what's my first approach? What's my first perspective going to be? And then we'll dig further.
So that's kind of the, I wouldn't say nutshell, because I don't know if that was a nutshell, but that's kind of the subject that I feel for me, it's not even a subject, like in my mind, a subject or a topic is outside of you, you think about it, or you read about it, I feel like it's the being or the compass for which my being really kind of just follows along. And it, it really manifests in so many ways. And I, I will give you some practical examples, meaning I could share how it's not just a theory or it's not just a concept or a really altruistic objective to try to be very spiritual when really I'm just as human as everybody else. I feel like we all have this dynamic and the focus we choose is really what makes the difference in the outcomes we see. I love how you said that the key is the order because you can't negate either part of yourself. And sometimes we use our awareness of our soul as like the second thing that we look at when we look in the mirror or when we look at other people, we say, oh, and they have a soul. So don't forget that they also have that pure part inside of them as opposed to going soul first and then looking at the human divisions or the practical ways that they're being expressed that is clashing with us. As you said, this could come across as an abstract concept. I think we all intellectually know that we have a soul, that other people have a soul. And yet when we interact with ourselves and we interact with each other, sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate in the way that we see people. So I'd love if you could share any practical examples of how this has really come into play either with yourself or with other people and in relating to them in a way that you were able to bridge those differences and really get to the heart of who they are at that pure pristine place? I love that question. It makes it real, right? So I'll give you two examples. One's more, I'm saying historical, but that's probably inaccurate. It's just my life story. And it's very practical in terms of how in your face and obvious it is. I'm just going to give you the storyline or the thread. And that is that both of my parents were raised in wonderful, but very secular American homes where who you were and what you accomplished and what you achieved and your career and all, you know, all of that was very, very important. And it happened to be that you're Jewish, like very much a side detail. Mm. It wasn't even something you celebrated once a year, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, no bar mitzvah, like really, really like it's less significant than your eye color. It just happens to be that's who you are. And that was their background. So what's interesting about that, when I'm saying Jewish, I'm associating that also with like, you happen to be a soul, you happen to have a soul, you happen to be part of this collective Jewish soul. Those were all things that my parents knew as the most significant part of themselves. And the short story of that, which is a larger, more awe-inspiring for me story, is that when my parents were both college students, they started asking questions like, well, what does it mean that I'm Jewish? And what am I supposed to do about it? Or am I even supposed to do anything about that? And thank God, thanks to the Rebbe's vision, college students, even in the 60s and 70s, when things were pretty hectic and chaotic, they had the Rebbe's emissaries who were, and I'm not going to go into the who, the where, the what, but I'll just mention they were able to ask those questions and start showing up at the table to see what does that mean to live with your soul, with your Jewishness, with your identity in the front seat? What does that mean Mm. that first I'm a Jewish human and then I'm all my complicated versions of me? And they didn't just see it and taste it and decide it was very sweet, even though it came with many challenges, they decided to change their entire lives to set it up so that the Jewish expression of their soul would be primary. And they would raise myself and thank God I have eight brothers and a sister to all um, kind of literally put this neshama 
as not a PS about me, but it affects how I choose to eat and work and live and play and love and pick any other adjective, you know, or, or verb that humans do. Something that's very significant to me, because on an average Friday night, I could have 150 or 200 students coming to join us for Shabbat dinner. And I look into their eyes. Any of them could have been my parents when they were in college saying, what's Shabbat? What do Jews do on Shabbat? What do they eat? What do they wear? What do they sing? Even if it's, I'm only prioritizing it for this night of the week, but it's a practical, visible, everyone can mm. see that I'm wearing my Jewishness publicly right here, right now for this Shabbat dinner. And I can't overestimate the value of that, especially to college students, that it's not a hypocritical life to prioritize your body and your success and your career always. And then once in a while, prioritize your soul because the value of prioritizing your soul, its wants, its needs, its joys any time in your life, even for a holiday or a moment, is beautiful because like a muscle, when you work it, it gets stronger. Even if you only work it very rarely, you still gave it that workout. And that's a beautiful thing. I love that. And part of why it's so powerful is that that is your essence. So if you're highlighting your essence, then it can't be hypocritical, even if it's rare. You're not a fragmented person. As you mentioned in the beginning, your soul speaks through the body. So soul first and then body. Sometimes we don't look to the source, but the source is always there when we tap into it. It's just like going even deeper into who we are. Exactly. And what you said, I say, and I amplify it when I have the opportunity that maybe it's hypocritical when you're only focusing on one part of you. And that's taking up the predominant headspace of your life, meaning your career and working out and eating healthy and your social life. And like, why is the hypocrisy only in allowing the soul to speak as opposed to denying the soul its voice? And, oh, that's when you're authentic and here you're being a hypocrite. Like, maybe it's the other way around. I'm not judging. I'm just asking the question because obviously neither of it is hypocritical. It's both living, but it's living through different parts of us. And I think the way you highlighted it, which I appreciated it because you kind of echoed back to me what I said was, it's kind of the order or the sense of like, well, what comes first? Even if if you look at my day, it might look like a full human action-oriented outward expression with very little soul going down in carpool and in, you know, this class or this activity or attending to this one's homework and that one's art project or whatever. It's not so much what's taking up your time. It's your priority of Mm. what your values are. The example I gave you before was really just from my life, meaning like, I couldn't be more grateful that my parents chose to prioritize their Jewishness, because I don't know where I would be. And I would say, certainly, it's a wild thing that five of my siblings actually run Chabad houses on campus, which means they didn't just prioritize, okay, I'm going to live a Jewish life where I'm going to use, you know, whatever creative talents, outlets and resources to build a career or to build, you know, a successful business, which obviously is a wonderful, important thing to do, but literally chose to further this prioritization of like, where do I want to give my energy and ability? I want to give it to sharing that light and to opening up others to kind of shining their own light in this world and to living their most successful, wild, creative careers with your neshama first, with your soul first. So I tell people all the time, you're going to be a better doctor or lawyer, or, you know, it doesn't matter what therapist, psychologist, whatever you want to be. If you're in a shama, if your core, if your essence, you're aware of, you're tapped into, and it leads you as opposed to it's dragging behind, locked up in the trunk. 
And that's why even if you're pursuing, you know, you name it in the world, if you do it with your soul shining, leading you, you're going to do whatever you're doing better because you're more in touch with the authentic real essence of you. So I'll give you an example. Up until the pandemic, I had this program that I did every semester, which was called Kala on the Row. And basically what I did is I would do a challah bake in every single one of the houses on the row and the different houses, it's groups of women from all different backgrounds, but somehow Jewish women particularly are very drawn to this sorority system where you have this social life kind of built in and all these events and programming with this specific group of women that you identify and connect with on different levels. Anyway, long story short, I do a challah bake in every house during the semester. And at the end of the semester, I'll always do a challah bake at Chabad for anyone who couldn't come, wasn't available, isn't part of that Greek culture. And it's obviously more than just getting together to bake. There's obviously some deeper significance into what the purpose of even making something and sharing it and energizing or giving our bodies nutrients, etc. A whole lot of stuff that goes into this. When I did a challah bake at the sorority house, they would always tell me about how many women would be joining. And so I would prepare enough dough and ingredients and supplies for that number. When I did it at Chabad, it was very much a tremendous guessing game. How many people are coming? How many am I preparing for? Sometimes I was way over, way under. That's the story of my life. Every Shabbat dinner looks like that. So that's the background of this story. What did I do? I took an email that I sent out just letting people know if anyone wanted to join this colleague. And I just wrote the time and date when it was. And I have it here. It was called Do the Challah Twist tonight. I wrote time and place and I sent it out. And the normal response to such an email is radio silence. People either come or they don't come. Very few people let you know that they are or are not coming or that they saw the email. It's just the way it is. So I send out this email and I do want to just make one disclaimer because I don't want anybody to think that I'm some divine angelic human that always sees everyone and everything, (laughs) you you know, (laughs) in in the best way. I also wake up on the wrong side of the bed some days and I also struggle with knowing what the right thing is and actually showing up in that space to do it. Like, I I don't know if I need to say that, but I need to say that. So I don't want everyone to think I'm, I'm always operating optimally. Far from it. I wish I'm trying and I'm struggling too, but at least I know where I'm heading. So anyway, I sent out the email. I go do my carpools. Nothing went wrong. Everyone got out of the car without a tantrum. No one forgot their lunch. No one forgot their sweater. It's a good day. Like everything's going well. I'm in a good, positive (laughs) mindset. Okay. Um, I come back home, coffee number three is down and I check my emails and I see, oh wow, someone responded to my Hala message. That's great. It's great to have a response because I was like checking the air to see what I should prepare for. So I get this response. And because I know that your podcast is called Human and Holy, and some of the words in this email are not so holy, they're definitely human. I'm going to beep out the very non-holy words to keep it very kosher. But this is what it is. It's three sentences. I'm going to read it to you. So it says, I am not part of blank, blank, Emery Chabad. Your organization is disgusting and you are all pathetic. Take Mm. me off of your mother blank, blank mailing list. I said mother because it's a good word, but you know, (laughs) in this context, (laughs) you are racist, offensive, heathen, blank, blank, blank. You have a nice day, Michelle. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, 
Whoa, like that's a lot for like challah. Meaning if I was inviting you to my son's circumcision and you were upset about it, I hear you. If I said, come and pray and fast for 25 hours for Yom Kippur and you didn't like that, I hear that. If we were doing a fundraising campaign and you did not want to contribute and you were upset, I hear that. But challah, everybody, I cannot tell you how many women from all different backgrounds and ethnicities have loved making challah. And guess what? Even if you're gluten-free or vegan or you can't have sesame seeds, like we can accommodate challah for every (laughs) diet and palate. Like this is not, there's no reason to be so upset. But having woken up on the side of the bed where I'm an ashama. I'm a I'm a person in this world that's light, and what I need to do is secondary to who I am, and how I'm going to look at everyone else is going to be that same way. I'm going to judge you as favorably as I'm judging myself. So everyone's an ashama. Everybody's a light, but this light's yelling at me and being really nasty and calling me names that I actually had to look up. I wasn't exactly sure what heathen was in this moment, <laughs> but you know. So I figured, obviously, I don't want anyone to be concerned. I was going to take Michelle off the mailing list. At this point, it was clear that she was not on the right mailing list. But before I did, I figured it's not going to hurt anyone to respond and then delete her. So this was my response to Michelle. Dear Michelle, I admire your deep passion, which clearly comes through in your email. Mm, I'll respect your wishes and remove you from the mailing list. Having never met me, you make some broad and sweeping statements. As for me, I think you're probably a great person just having a rough day, wishing you inner peace and happiness. Always, Miriam Lipsker. And now I'm about to hit send and delete, but I figured it's not going to cost anything to add a PS because we're not going to go any further downhill from here. So I wrote PS, if you ever want to have coffee with a racist, offensive, heathen, and I made a bunch of, you know, (laughs) hashtag emojis and stuff, give me a call. I put my cell phone, I hit send, I delete her from the mailing list. And between you and me, I never thought I would hear from Michelle again. But that was on the 15th. And on the 17th, I get this response. Dear Miriam, I read your email the day I received it, and I apologize for the delay in my response. I am indeed passionate, blunt, kind-hearted, and as you knew it, having a very rough day. I laughed and smiled in the morning when I read your response. Thank you. I think I may like to take you up on your offer and meet with you. Smiles, Michelle. So now you're probably thinking, okay, Michelle, you know, married some Rosh Hashiva's son and lives in Maya Sha'arim with 15 children or whatever, pick your happily ever after extreme version. But that isn't actually what happened. We made up to meet and, you know, I got a call from my kid's school. Your kid's sick. She's not feeling well. You need to come pick her up right now. So I had to cancel. Then we meet again and I'm sitting at Starbucks waiting and I get a text my professor's keeping us overtime for this end of semester review. And I'm so sorry, I have to cancel. Then she goes a semester abroad. Then she graduates. And although I did Facebook stalk her, I know where she is. We have not yet met. And wow. so it's weird that I'm going to share a story that doesn't seem to have an ending because what's the ending? It's really just an email exchange. But what I learned from this email exchange is if your thoughts and the way you're choosing to see someone is that soul 
first, that primarily I'm a neshama and I'm a light and I'm good and I'm a part of God. And then I'm saying words or I'm responding or I'm interacting with whatever feisty negative attributed to, you know, she's a New Yorker attributed to whatever. It's final season. I don't know. It literally literally not just in theory and not as a concept it literally changes the whole tone of the conversation because it started out with a lot of negative words and i just want you to know tanya it's not like i wasn't able to give her like an equally sharp snarky response back like it's not like i don't have it in me it's not i wasn't able to i'm just like you know i only can say and no that's not what this is that's not what this is trust me But what this is, is if I'm really living in that place, and again, it's not that I wake up that clearly in that space as I would want to every day, but if I'm really living in the space that I'm a neshama, you're a neshama, then I don't need to respond to your words. I could respond to your essence. I don't need to respond to what you're putting out externally. I could respond to what I know is there internally, to what I know is really who you are. And the craziest thing about it is I could not have predicted that she would have responded like, yeah, I am a good, kind-hearted person mm-hmm. having a rough day. And wow. thank you, meaning she didn't say those exact words, but like, thank you for seeing me for who I am, not for how I showed up, not for wow. the words I threw up at you. And what I really appreciate about this email exchange is it reminds me all the time that, yes, words is very often how we interact with others, and especially my own children. Kids could be doing and saying really off the wall, inappropriate, like totally, you know, that's wrong. You know, we don't, you know, do that or color on the wall or throw your siblings project or whatever. I don't know if I could give you all the examples that go on in the course of a day. And I can respond to, we don't do that. We don't say that. And I'm, and I would just be chief of police of my house, trying to control and be the protecting or controlling or policing whoever and whatever in my life, because I have all the opportunity to do that every minute of every day. Or I could still know that's my place. I'm the parent. I need to take care of things. I need to respond. But first, I'm going to choose to see you as an Ashama. First, I'm going to choose to see you my beautiful, glorious, divine light of God, not as a tantering toddler, Mm. but you're an Ashama. And from that place, then I'm going to take care of what I need to. I'm going to do whatever is needing to be done. But what, what changes about that same interaction is, there's love, there's connection, there's bonding, because you're part of me, you are me, my light and your light are the same. So yeah, you're throwing a tantrum, you're wreaking havoc, you're not putting on your shoes to leave the park, and I'm holding the baby in the other hand, and I can't do them for you, and we can't leave if you don't do that. That's real, that's true. But if my starting point is seeing that light, seeing that goodness, seeing that positivity, the end point may still be I needed to provide some boundaries and structure and discipline. It doesn't change that. But the tone and the outcome of that conversation guaranteed has to be different because I led with the light. I led with the soul. I led with the essence. And right. truth doesn't lie. You can have Avasusra, love for another, if you see the other as not another. If you see the other as one with you, then it's so much easier to not let the differences get in the way. But if you're starting out from my court and your court and my team and your team, oh my gosh, it's, it's always color war. Every day is a war. And it's a stressful way to live if every day is a war and every day I'm combating myself and everyone around me because we're all wanting and competing for different things everybody's aware of like this, the huge transformative, 
event that took place when the Jewish people left Egypt and went on to become free people. We we don't just retell ourselves this story, but like for the last 3,333 or four years, we've been celebrating it, you know, satyrs and Haggadahs and very much reliving this story. But one of the highlights of the story is when the Jews leave exile in Egypt, but then they're faced with another dead end, which is the sea in front of them, and they don't know which way to turn, and they don't know where to go. And the Hasidic masters and Kabbalah explains that when God first created Earth, the sea was told, just P.S., I want you to know, yeah, you're this roaring, raging sea. Just so you know, in 2,400, whatever years later, you're going to have to do something really counterintuitive to the natural running of being a sea. You're going to have to split for these Jews that are going to come through. Like, here's their souls. They're going down there. And in the future, you're going to have to split for them. And what happens when the Jews show up at the sea? The sea didn't recognize them because these souls, these pristine, glorious lights of God had been through a really difficult period in slavery and their mm-hmm. externals, what they, how they chose to live and what they got involved in and what their headspace was, their thoughts and their feelings and their dress, their action and behavior didn't look as innocent and beautiful as they first started out because they had been through, you know, the 49 gates of all different types of dirt and challenges. So at first, the sea did not recognize these humans that showed up because they showed up as humans and the soul mm. didn't, the sea didn't see that holy soulful energy. But as soon as God told the ocean, these souls are those souls. And it took a split second for the sea to recognize and acknowledge, oh, they look different. They're a little dirtier. They've been beaten and bruised. They're coming with a lot of schmutz, but it is those same pristine souls. In that split moment, the sea parted for the Jews to walk through because that soul was the essence, and it was recognized, even though it had been through all that trauma of what happened in in Mitzrayim. And I think that very often, meaning the sea splitting and letting the Jewish souls through is really something that happens in our life, that our challenges split before us when we let the souls shine first. And when we don't judge someone by the schmutz that they're showing up with, or the dirt, or the scars, or the battered, tattered dust of of living, and judge people from that place, but rather from the place of that connected, light, soul-filled force, then the sea split, so to speak, in our relationship, in our ability to love one another, and understand one another, and connect to one another. And it really opens up a whole new pathway to walk through when I recognize that soul in you as opposed to whatever else you're choosing to show up as. Right. In that email that you shared, that you read to us, I hear this relief in the woman's voice, which is, oh, you saw past my bluster and you saw past my bad mood to see that, yes, I am really a kind, warm person inside. And I think that that's something that we experience whenever someone interacts with us on that soul level is like that relief, like, oh, you're seeing me for who I really am and not seeing me for that choice that I made. And whenever you're having a hard time and someone says, it sounds like you're having a rough time. I can tell you're a good person. I can tell you're a nice person. It's like, Exhale, because that assumption of inherent goodness from other people reinforces it for us. And then we could behave in a way that's more aligned with who we really are. And I love how you mirrored that with your own personal experience, which is that when you your college students come in on a Friday night, you see the eyes of your parents. And they're not an other who doesn't prioritize their soul. They're the mirror of you, the mirror of your mother, the mirror of your father coming in there 
and their first identity being their soul. And when you really greet them in that way, then we are all one at that place. And what's beautiful about Paraglomid Bays is that it teaches us how to see ourselves first in order to see other people in that way. So we have to be living from that soul first place in order to be able to see people in that soul first place. Like you mentioned on that day, you were you were in an aligned day because, you know, if you had woken up on the wrong side of bed, you might not have given her the same grace. So like we need to be in that headspace for ourselves in order to believe in that for others. You sum that up so, so beautifully. While you were saying that, what came up for me and just popped out was this need. And I'm sure it's not just a college campus thing. I think it's more reflected in, you know, across our culture is people want to be seen. Mm -hmm. And people use that expression very often. Like I felt seen as one of the highest, greatest feelings, or I want to feel seen or what it means when you do feel seen in a situation. And I'm not going to psychoanalyze any of it except to say that from a Jewish perspective, being seen or feeling seen or wanting and needing, whether it's children wanting to feel seen from their parents or right. spouse to mm. spouse or colleagues, it doesn't really matter who you plug into that equation. What does it mean being seen? It means you saw who I really was. You love me for who I really am. Now, who am I really? I'm a divine light. Now, that doesn't mean I said or did the right thing, but you didn't just judge my actions. I was seen meaning who I really want. And you're so right that we all breathe a collective sigh of relief when someone attributes positive intent to our actions or our words, instead of jumping to conclusion to kind of vilify. And we we do that very often, most of the time when we're in a place where we're doing that to ourselves. And I think when we could see ourselves, we are able to see others. But I want to make just one distinction. If it ends there, if that's the concluding chapter of your seeing yourself, you really never got to where it makes the most difference in your joy, in your vibrant ability to output positivity in our world. And that's seeing your neshama. And sometimes when we get carried away with like, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? It almost does the opposite because we get so sick. It's almost like, can I just get over myself? Because I am seeing but I'm seeing a part of me and it's not an unimportant part of me, but if I would put some of that focus and some of that energy and direct some of that to that soul and light in me and feed that and express that and dig deeper into that, because there's, there's no end and no shortage of ways that a neshama feels fed and seen and heard by engaging in all sorts of acts of goodness and kindness and selflessness and giving and learning and connecting that the neshama feels seen. And I feel like when a human being, any human being with any background, with any level of knowledge is able to shift the priority of my physical being so that it's still there. It's still taking up, you know, prime time, you know, headspace and hand space and all the other spaces. But I'm first going to acknowledge my essence and my light. And I'm going to let that come into all the other parts of me. That's what I think personally, when people say I feel seen, feeling seen means a neshama, a soul, my heart, my essence, my core. You got that. Oh, nothing feels better. There's nothing more pleasurable than feeling seen. And I feel like if we know that about ourselves, and if we're able to appreciate that when it happens to us, then we're so much better equipped to give that gift to the people in our life that deserve it and matter most, like our children, our spouse, our colleagues, student, whoever it is that we interact with. And I feel like my job as a parent is to 
see my children, but not to just be the chief criticizer of what you're doing wrong and what you didn't do quick enough and fast enough and right enough, but to see that light and to reflect it back to them and to constantly allow them to feel seen by me because that's my primary role here in this spot. And whether those are my biological children or spiritual children Mm. or anyone I interact with, again, I'm going to fall short all the time because that's the human. But the holy tells me that's what I'm aiming for. That's what I'm trying for. Because I think that's what Hashem put us on this planet to do, not just to feel seen and be seen, but that that seeing allows Hashem to be seen because that's what we're expressing when we see the light in another. It's the divine light on a practical level. If I want to bring godliness down here, if I want to bring heaven down to earth, how do I do that? By being seen, seeing myself and others as that light draws that light of godliness everywhere. And it literally floods the world with divine light because we're acknowledging it and we're seeing it instead of ignoring it or kicking it under the rug or not even, you know, pretending it's in the room. So that's really an awesome thing to be a part of. It's so interesting because like that self-awareness that you mentioned that could border on self-obsession, I think only happens when we divorce our body from our souls. If we really see our body as the vehicle through which our soul expresses itself in this world, then even when we're self-aware about our body's limitations or needs, or even about our own personal flaws, if we're seeing them through the perception of our soul's infinite potential and responsibility in this world, I think that it could only do good for us. The issue is in that fragmentation, like when there's that disconnect, When we become self-aware about our limitations, not through the lens of the infinite potential we have to overcome them or to succeed despite our body's limitations or the same thing is with people in our lives. I don't think it's about not acknowledging the limitations, but making sure, like you said, to always see it through the lens of the soul. The soul is trying to express itself in a broken world and sometimes the body limits it. But deep down at its source, the soul is purely good has purely good potential, and only wants to express godliness, despite the hiccups along the way. Right. Or if we let it, if we let it, like if we don't get in the way, because Mm. we're really good at getting in the way. I'll echo what you said, that I think our whole world is really that dichotomy of either living in a fragmented world where there's all these pieces, and I'm trying to make sense of them. And that provides me with unending anxiety, stress, and chaos because it's a fragmented world and there's all these pieces and where do I find myself and where do I show up and how do I show up? And it's so much confusion and darkness. And the reverse of that or really the opposite side of that coin is, no, it's one holistic world. And we as human beings are part of this light. So yes, there's work to do in light, but it's not broken pieces of darkness. It's finding and allowing the light to shine instead of blocking it and obfuscating the light that's supposed to come out. And I think we do that as people all the time. Like we we kind of put our parts of ourselves in little boxes and then it's stressful to keep track of so many boxes and labels and you have all these companies organizing people and getting you know everything lined up and labeled but that's great for a pantry or a closet. But if you try to do that to your humanity, you feel like You don't feel that humanity because there's just something about holistically understanding that as you 
mentioned, and I think it's such an important idea, the body's not coming to bring challenges or to bring struggles or to have needs that are in conflict or against the soul. It's just these are two vehicles working together. And if we could get that together and that tandem and that unity, then it feels more holistic. And then I have less stress and anxiety because I still have obstacles and I still have challenges and I still have things that need to get done and lack of time or resources to get them done. And those are all still happening, but I'm approaching it with a lightness. My whole self is coming Mm. to this problem and I'm able to still struggle through it, but the way it's being done makes all the difference, even though to someone looking from outside, they don't see that there's anything different going on between picture A or picture B. It's not so much visible because it's not external. That's such a good point because I think that often the reason why certain negative traits in other people or in ourselves bother us so much is because it's like, what does that say about the inherent evil within myself or the inherent evil within someone else? Parents often report when they see a negative trait in a child, it's so concerning to them because it's like, is there inherently something flawed or narcissistic or selfish about my child? And when you can separate the action and say the action is not a reflection of the child's inherent self, it's just a disconnect between my source and my expression. Like you said, there's a lightness, like it takes away some of the pressure of like what that action says about the person. Right. And I'll tell you, it's interesting for me because I may come across in this conversation sounding like this very positive Pollyanna, see the light. I've heard the term, you know, toxic positivity, like it's all good. And what's what's true in my own life is that my husband is actually the naturally optimistic. Anyone could do like the most awful or say the most awful things. And he he doesn't it's like an instinctual response of like why it's good or how it will be good or something positive. And it's like, so annoying. And it annoys me to no end. Cause I'm like, no, that was a terrible thing he did or said or whatever. And it's very generous and big of you to give this person such a positive intent when that is absolutely not where this was coming from. And for me, it isn't that natural. My first place, my first place is to call it by its name, analyze it, even moan a little about how awful that was that that happened. And then to align myself on an intellectual level and say, no, the better way to view the scenario or the situation is to find something positive that I could take away from it. And I could walk away from this seemingly negative experience with something that I'm taking, but I'm very careful. Meaning for me, it's an avoda. It's like, which doesn't bother me because I know King David says in Psalms, it's ivdu et Hashem besimcha. It's supposed to be a work, an avoda to serve God with joy. So I'm blessed to be married to someone that it comes naturally to. It's like default mode. But for me, it's a work. I need to think about it and then apply it and then have a practical takeaway. Ending off, I would love if you could share, like, hit us with some tips for anyone who is possibly struggling, probably all of us, because we are human beings and we don't always see the person's soul reflected in their actions. What advice do you have on how to start to bridge that gap and start to better see someone's soul despite their actions not necessarily being aligned with their soul? Right. Right. So I don't know when you said practical tips. This is definitely not a tips and tricks concept. This is much more of like a big idea. Um, Give us a recipe. 
Right, right. And I was going to say, like, how many chocolate chips per oatmeal per brown sugar in this recipe? I'm at a loss for the exact ingredients. But I will, and I, I say this very sincerely, for someone who really does want to tap into this idea, my first and most practical tip would be to sign up and subscribe to your podcast because you do so many different conversations that are really seem like big ideas, or they really seem like they're like these heavy concepts, but so many of them are different facets of this conversation taken in different directions, meaning mm. the struggle of the body and the soul, the struggle of a human being in this world with joy, with conflict, with challenge, with internal stuff, etc. My biggest tip that I've used in my own life is when I thought I could get away with just coasting on what I knew, because I'm too busy and overwhelmed and tired to learn, what I found is that inspiration or that spark of light, it's always there. But mm. sometimes it's very dim. And it's you're still cold because it's not bright enough. And what I found, I'm not going to say the only thing, but the primary or the foundational element that could be done practically is you need to learn. And you. why I'm saying this podcast, because it's so easy, it's so accessible. I can go for a run or do carpool or go to Costco or whatever it is, get something else done, or actually be present and sit down and do nothing else distracting, but listen to conversations where deep ideas about souls, about holiness, about godliness, about our mission, about our purpose, that's really the fuel for having the neshama's light turned on in a bright enough way where it's actually warming and spreading as opposed to just that pilot light that's sitting there quiet. And I found that today it's so much easier than, you know, 20 years ago when you had to take a book, dust it off, or go and download and print some article, which you then read. There's We have such an incredible wealth and ability to listen. It could be any style that you learn best in, whether it's audio, video, you know, visual, interaction, a panel, 10 different people sharing on a subject. We literally are, are the most rich generation when it comes to access to information, knowledge, and, and Torah study and deep ideas. And I don't think there's any shortcut or any like recipe that I have that would get anyone from point A to point B that would circumvent some learning because it literally has to be a cognitive process that you chew over and then ingest and then that flows from you. Although I will say that it has helped me even just taking that statement of I'll say this in a parenting context, if my child's doing or misbehaving in the moment, and instead of rushing in with correcting and fixing and disciplining, I first literally mindfully tell myself and remind myself like God entrusted this infinite light to me to help this light express itself in the world Beautiful. and now go in there and do whatever <laughs> cleanup job needs to be done. But I'm not a big meditative person. I'm not all Zen. That's not me, but I can do this. I can say before I swoop in, this is not just a misbehaving kid causing chaos or, or you know, bothering whatever their, their sibling. This is an ashama. This is a light. Anytime I have to sit with a complicated or difficult conversation with someone, that's what I tell myself before I start. Not what are my talking points and what am I going nice. to respond and how could I prove that I'm right and how could I convince them of my point? Yes, <laughs> but first, 
We're souls here. You're a light here. You're good. You're good. You're infinitely good. And now we can we can have our conversation. And it maybe sounds really pedestrian. And really, does that make the difference? Like, really, does it work? Really? And I'm going to say 100% for me, it works because it just reminds me to get done whatever it is I need to get done. But from that perspective where I'm interacting with a soul and I better treat that person that way. And we usually walk away better for it. And by the way, it works so well for myself when I am down on like, you could have done that. You messed up with that. You totally said the wrong thing. And we all are pretty much experts, untrained experts in doing that to ourselves. I literally say that also, like I'm a divine godly soul and you're discussing where I messed up in in my humanity, but it doesn't take away my infinite worth and my ultimate value and who I am at my core isn't affected because I made this mistake or I messed up here. Yeah, I messed up. I got to fix it, take responsibility, but it's not going to affect me to my core because that's not my core. That's just my human making the mistake. My holy is still here shining and that's pristine and it's untouched. And anytime I tap into that, it's a win for me. It's a win for everybody around me. And it's a good way to live life because you do find light when you're looking for it. When you're looking to criticize, it's so easy. You're an expert. You can find everything wrong in the situation, the self or the other. And when you're looking for light, you find it and you see it and you magnify it and life is so much more enjoyable and calm and peaceful and beautiful because you're choosing to focus on the light and that's what you're going to get more of. And so that's what I want more of. That's what we all want more of. And I think that's what the coming of Mashiach is supposed to be. It's just more of that light, more of that olive shining through, less of the brokenness and the fragmentation and darkness and more of the light. And we're able to do that every day when we're conscious to show up with that intention and to prioritize that neshama element of us first and then go about being human with that kind of radiating in all the directions that ourselves take us on a given day. Right. As you said, people respond differently when they can tell that you see them as a soul first. And we also respond differently to ourselves and to our own self-talk when we're operating at the forefront of our minds. Right, right. And it for sure starts with them because you I don't think one is able to do that for another if they can't first do that with themselves. Although sometimes it's like what well, comes first, the chicken. Sometimes you just have to start with externally and it will affect internally. So there's definitely a whole nother branch of a conversation of like which way it works, because very often the action is what leads to the feeling like I'm gonna choose to see you that way and then we're gonna respond that way. And this isn't even talking about action. We're not doing anything. We're just viewing. We're just seeing all the doing through these eyes. And there's so much work right there. And we didn't even like roll up our sleeves yet. (laughs) So yeah, we, we, we're, we're busy. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is that the way we see people and the way we see ourselves absolutely informs the way we act and, and the way that people respond. So I do think that the perception is an action in and of itself. Miriam, thank you so much. This was awesome. I loved it. Well, thank you. I really want to bless you like from deep in my heart, the ripple effect of that knowledge that you share with these conversations you have on these subjects are so invaluable to reprogramming the way anyone in this universe shows up because I really truly believe that concepts from Torah are the greatest source for transformation in our behaviors and our actions. So really, I bless you. You should just thank go from you. strength to strength. And thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Miriam. I ha- it was such a pleasure. Happy carpooling. Yeah, exactly. 
If I wear a costume, maybe you will not see me. Maybe you will not so easily reach to feel my pulse. Maybe if I wear a costume, I can pretend that it has become me. And then its reflection will be the only thing that I see. Precious souls. We build ourselves wicker baskets to survive. Tar on the outside to fend off the water. If we lie to ourselves, people will not peel away our costumes to hold our essence to the light. They will trample on whatever we believe we've become until we tell the world. I mean soul. I mean soul. I am soul first, not body. And then when we look in the mirror, when we look out into the world, essence will be the first thing that we see. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha lechaberet nishmati tamidinecha mechaber lechaber Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.